How are we doing, church? Doing good? All right, you look great. Grab your Bibles. We're going to be in Joshua 5. I'll get there in just a second. If you were here last week, you know that we rolled out the vision uh, for 2016. And so if you didn't get a chance to get one of these, you can get it at the Connect Center on your way out. Uh, and a part of our vision is we're calling the men of the Church of 1122 to stand up and act like men. When men lead and love well, everyone flourishes. And a part of what that is, is we've got a bunch of stuff focused on marriage this year. It starts out with uh, the Mingling of the Souls Conference led by my friend Matt Chandler and his wife Lauren. And uh, we'd love for you to be part of that on the back of your bulletin. There's information on how to sign up for that. And man, a part of what it means to lead is for you to lean over and be like, baby, we ought to do this. All right. And you lead in that, not just uh, let her sign up and then, and then you go because she makes you. Also, if your marriage is going awesome, some of you think, well, I don't really need to go to that because my marriage is awesome. That's like saying, I don't need to go to the gym because I'm in shape. Because guess what happens if you quit going? <laughs> you know, just look at me. So, uh, so we'd love for you to, to be a part of that. Now, what I'm really excited about today, um, I'm really excited to, to preach this message. You're not going to be as excited to hear it. Uh, because last week, you know, it was a lot about 1122. And I, don't, and I don't want you to ever think that it's all about 1122. It's not. It's all about Jesus. And what God is all about, God is about the glory of God. Which means he's not really as into you as you thought, okay? And so what I'm going to do is just deconstruct all of what you thought about you and him, really. And, uh, and, but stick around for the end. It gets way better right at the end, but just right at the end. Um, and, and here's the deal. If God woke you up today, did you ever think about he's not done with you? Like if you're on this side of the dirt, then what God is doing in you right now is preparing you for the rest of your life. He is preparing you for the rest of your life. Uh, J.I. Packer says it this way, still God seeks the fellowship of his people and he sends both sorrow and joy in order to detach their love from the things of this world and attach it to himself. That God's gonna do stuff in you and he's gonna do stuff to you this year to prepare you for the rest of your life and even eternity, but it ain't about you. It ain't about you. It's really all about the glory of God. And what we're going to see here in Joshua is we're going to see God um, show up in such a way that Joshua begins to see God for who he really is, and Joshua's going to see himself for who he really is. And this is like the linchpin moment in Joshua's life and leadership. Because if you miss this moment, you could get to the very end of Joshua, and you could think, wow, he was brave. And if you do that, you miss the whole point of the book of Joshua. The, po the point of the book of Joshua is Joshua is used greatly by God, not for Joshua's sake, but for God's sake. And that, that Joshua lives his life because he fully surrenders his life to the lordship of the one that's in control of all things. I want to give you a warning. I just made this up. This is just my opinion. But the two biggest pitfalls to leadership are insecurity and ego. The two biggest pitfalls to leadership or insecurity and ego. And there may be some of you, well, I'm not a leader. Every single one of us this week will be in positions of leadership. Some of you lead multi-million dollar organizations as the CEO or the president. Some of you lead carpool. Some of you, you might just be leading your cats when you get home. You understand? I don't know. But there'll be some point in your week where you look around and you are in charge of stuff. And the two biggest pitfalls to that leadership are insecurity and ego. Now, here's the thing about this message. Here's what I'm going to try to do. Um, as I was sharing this message with our staff this week, one of our people, uh, great guy, really smart, very logistical and organized and those kinds of things. And he loves Jesus and he's on our staff and, and that's kind of what he's in charge of. So he's, he's good at that stuff. And he goes, so what are the two applications or takeaways from this sermon? And I go, well, there really aren't any. You see, I'm not going to give you like, here's three things that you could do better by next week. It's not going to be that way at all. Basically, I just want to crush the way you've been brought up and see yourself and the Lord really. 
deconstruct that and then reconstruct it in a way that lines up with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And because the two things that begin to creep up in us are are insecurity and ego. Insecurity tells you that your job is to please people. And ego tells you that the people's job is to please you. A correct view of who God is and who you are, it corrects both of those. So let's get real practical, like in my own marriage. When I'm, I mean, this week, I will be called to lead my house and to lead my wife, and there are two pitfalls in that leadership. One, one is insecurity. If I think that I was put on this earth to make my wife happy, that is not why I was put on this earth. All right? Can I get an amen? You hear that very insecure amen, ladies? Because, <laughs> boys, you know what I'm talking about, right? You spin that wheel every morning. You're like, come on, happy. Give me happy. Come on, what we got? What we got? Okay, all right. Here we go. Go to work. All right, so, and I know what some of you, can I get an amen? amen. No, y'all are like, I ain't amen. I'm signing up at a marriage conference, bro. That's what I'm doing, okay? <laughs> and what begins to happen? Here's what I mean. So, can we just admit, fellas, that marriage is the, the left lane of sanctification, Like before you were married, you thought you were awesome, right? And then you got married and you're like, God, I didn't know I was a slob and greedy and so selfish. When did this come out in me? She just stirred up what was already in there and your roommate wouldn't tell you, but she will, okay? Now, can we just be honest? But but, (laughs) she ain't perfect either, right? (laughs) Mine's on the front row, all right? But I just gotta (laughs) preach it, okay? And so there are times, you see, what God has done is God puts us together to submit to one another, not because we're submittable to, but out of reverence for Christ. It is about the glory of God that we're married and not our own glory. And there are times where God has put us together to be sanctifying agents in one another's life. In other words, to sharpen us to be more and more like Jesus. And husbands, you know what I'm talking about. You walk in the house and you see some area uh, of your wife that needs to be sanctified, but do you bring it up? And you know you ought to. But you're like, huh, but you know what, it's late, and she's so happy right now, and I like to sleep indoors. So I think I'm going to live for the approval of her instead of be the man God has called me to be. You see, you let that insecurity rise up, and you think that your job is to, is to make her happy. Or sometimes, and often, you hear some sermon like this, be careful, and you'll overcorrect, and you'll come over here with, like, all ego. And you'd be like, what a lucky woman she is, blessed and highly favored of the Lord to have a man like me that would be willing to pluck out the plank in her eye. So baby, there's a couple things you need to uh, just learn and sit under my teaching. So I have written this sermon for you. Gather the kids, sit down and get out your notes because I'm going to preach the word to you. And then you begin to actually think that she exists to meet your needs. Come home with this expectation of a list saying, hey, have you earned your keep today? And both of those are lies from the pit of hell. You see, the two biggest pitfalls of leadership are insecurity and ego. It also, it's a weekly exercise for me when I preach. It's a weekly exercise. If I lean over here and get all insecure and I preach so that you will like me, guess what? I'll just feed you cotton candy and it may taste good for this hour, but you'll starve to death. You'll starve to death. That's what the Bible calls the tickling of the ears. Now, that's typically not the camp I live in. I kind of live over here, and I can go too far the other way and actually think that God created all of y'all just to show up every weekend to hear me preach. But my job is to be a shepherd, to serve, and to love you by preaching the truth that's in the gospel, whether you like it or not. And so I think we begin to see this in the life of Joshua in the first five chapters. We actually begin to see both of these, insecurity and ego. It starts out in chapter one with some insecurity. God shows up and says, hey, Josh, Moses is dead. And you know, he's like, "Uh uh-oh. 
I mean, this is his mentor, this is his leader, this is his trainer. And guess what, Josh? Now you're the boss and you're going to take the children of Israel into the promised land. And I believe that he feels weak and afraid. Not only is he afraid of the giants that are in front of him in the land of Canaan, but maybe he's afraid of that big giant named Moses that's behind him. How'd you like to fill Moses' shoes? And he's probably thinking, I don't think I have what it takes. And so God comes along and he rallies him and he says, be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be afraid. Not because you're awesome, but because I am. The Lord, your God, is with you wherever you go. But now by the time you get to chapter 5, that insecurity is kind of beginning to wane. And and maybe some ego is starting to build up because you see these winds starting to stack up one after the other after the other. You see... One of the big wins is this, is that the people are actually listening to him. The people are following after him. They say things like, wherever you go, we'll go. Wherever you say, whatever you say, do, we will do. Just like we followed Moses, we'll follow after you, which is a real backhanded compliment because they didn't really follow after Moses that well, all right, because church people are different today, all right, okay? And so not only that, they cross the Jordan. They cross over the Jordan. So so Joshua looks back, he's like, wow, the, the hand of the Almighty God, his favor is upon me, and he's doing miracles, and we get to walk through the Jordan. If you read through the beginning of chapter 5, Joshua leads the people, and he circumcises all of the men. And you think, I mean, you want a lesson in leadership. The Bible says that he does it with a flint knife. That does not sound sharp at all, okay? It just doesn't. You want to get real weird here? Okay, let's just read your Bible. Chapter, uh, verse 3, so Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Haraloth. You know what Gibeath Haraloth means? The hill of foreskin. <laughs> Worst neighborhood name in the history of neighborhood. <laughs> Where do you live? I'd rather not say, okay? The housing prices are going down. It's just not good. All right. Now, you're like, why, did, why is that in here? It was a really big deal. What, God, what, G, what Joshua was doing, he was reinstituting the covenant that God is a covenant God, and he has a covenant people, that God is who he says he is, and he always keeps his promises. The New Testament version of this would be baptism. It was a marker to say that I am his and he is mine. Then not only that, right after this, there's another huge win, that they celebrate Passover. And this is to remember God's faithfulness, that he redeemed the people out of the land of Egypt on purpose so that they would go to the promised land. And for the first time in an entire generation, they begin to eat of their own crops, and the manna quits falling from heaven. And if you'll remember, back in Deuteronomy, God's number one warning was, when you move into a land and you are eating your own food, do not forget me. And so, you see, Joshua is starting to feel like the man a little bit. I think Joshua is starting to get pumped up. Joshua is thinking, man, I got win after win after win after win. I am strong, and I am courageous. And what we're going to find in chapter 5, verses 13 to 15, I'm only going to preach three verses, but it will not be short, okay? Uh, What we're going to find here is, is to protect Joshua from himself, Jesus shows up. Now, some of you are brand new to Bible study, and you're like, it's about time. We have been reading this book for a while, and I haven't seen Jesus yet. And some of you have been in church for a while, you're like, no, 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 Pastor. Jesus shows up after Santa Claus in the New Testament. But what we're going to see is Jesus show up right here face-to-face with Joshua. Go to Joshua chapter 5. Verses 13 to 15, it says this. And when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and he looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, are you for us or for our adversaries? Now you gotta think, in this moment, Joshua is feeling like the man. Joshua has just come through the Jordan and walked on dry ground. 
all of the nation of Israel is following after him. Again, he, he has reinstituted, uh, reinstituted the covenant, and he celebrated Passover, and they're eating their own food. And he looks around at his boys, and he looks up on the horizon, and there's a man holding a sword. And he looks, and he's like, boys, you stay right here. I'll be right back which are some of the famous last words of most of the rednecks I know. Here, hold this. I'll be right back. All right. <laughs> and he goes up toe-to-toe with this man holding a sword, and he's like, hey, you, drawing a line in the sand. I got a question for you. Are you for us or are you for them? Right? He's like, ha, say it with your chest. Listen to me. You want some of this? Because I got it going on. I think that's what's going on in Joshua's mind. Are you for us? Are you against us? And look at the answer, verse 14. And he said, no. <laughs> no, 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 no. I said, are you for us or are you against us? No is not one of my options that I gave you. You went with none of the above. This is supposed to be multiple choice, okay? Uh, what are you talking about? So he says, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord, and now I have come. To which Joshua goes, oh, Shkibilon. All right, that's what he does. He's like, uh-oh. You see, he is face-to-face with the commander of the Lord's army. We'll see who this is in a minute, okay? And immediately he's like, uh-oh. And what the commander of the Lord's army is saying, hey, listen, I did not come to be a part of one of your categories. I am not coming to be a part of your little story about you and Jericho and this little piece of dirt over here uh, in, in the Middle East. I have not come to be a part of your story, but I'm inviting you to be a part of my story. That's how this goes. That you are not the main character in history, but I am. And I will give you an opportunity to play a supporting role. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and he worshiped. Do you know what happens when you come face to face with the almighty God? You worship. And do you know why? Because he's worth it. Period. Let me tell you, when you don't live a life of worship, and even particularly when you come in to gather with the saints, and we make much of him through song, and you just stand there like this, you know what that means? It means you don't have a correct view of who he is and what he's done, and that's, not why, you're, and, and that's why you're not responding correctly to who he is and what he's done, unless you think the whole world revolves around you. And then you're like, well, I just kind of show up late, and I can still find a seat and miss two songs, and then I'll just stand here until they might sing one of my favorites. But do you know why we sing? Because the almighty creator of heaven and earth says in his word, lift up your voice and lift up your hands in the sanctuary. And when you come face to face with who God is and you understand what he did at the cross and the resurrection, la 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 you do whatever he says to do. And you're not like, well, I'm not really a song person. It doesn't matter This general of the army, Joshua, is on his face because for the first time, he gets this picture of who God is, and he falls on his face, and he worships, and he says, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy, and Joshua did so. You see, this is what theologians call a Christophany. So at least 12 times in the Old Testament, There are places where a pre-incarnation appearance of Jesus happens. And here's why we we know this is true. First and foremost, Jesus was not created at Christmas. That, That Jesus was not created at all. That Jesus eternally exists as God the Son. That we have a triune God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. 
It's what we started in the Before All Things uh, series, that, that by him, by Jesus, everything that has been made was made by him and for him and through him and to him. And he, that's Jesus, is before all things, that before everything else, he is preeminent or he is first. In John chapter 1, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. But before he came fle- became flesh, he, he was still there. And so in this moment, Jesus himself shows up. And you still might be saying, so, so why do you think it's Jesus here? Why not just an angel? Well, when he says, take off your shoes for, for where you're standing is holy ground, it's an inference back to, it's a clear point back to Exodus chapter 3, where Moses comes before God, and he meets him at the burning bush. And he sees this burning bush, and then he hears God call out his name, Moses, Moses. And he shows up, and he says, take off your shoes because you're standing on holy ground. And God Almighty has this conversation with Moses. And he says, go to the Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And then Moses is like, who should I say sent me? And God says, Yahweh, that's his name. I am that I am. And in this moment, when Joshua comes face to face with this commander of the Lord's army with a sword, and he says, take off your shoes for your own holy ground. And he says, at the beginning of his introduction, he says, I am commander of the Lord's army, and I am here. And not only that, here's how we know this is not an angel. In Revelation 22.9, yeah, that's right, Revelation 22.9, John, the apostle John, has this revelation of heaven, and he sees an angel there, and he's so overwhelmed that he bows, bows down at the feet of an angel, and the angel says, no, 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 get up, get up, get up. I'm just a fellow servant like you. I am not worthy to be worshiped. But in this case, when Joshua bows down to the commander of the Lord's army, he doesn't say, get up, don't worship me. No, 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 he actually instructs him on how to worship him better. That Joshua is face to face with the almighty God in the person of Jesus Christ right here. And it changes everything. It changes everything. The commander of the Lord's army is saying, hey, listen, man, it ain't all about you. It is all about me. And the same thing is true for you and for me today. If you and I can get to that place where we realize that it's not all about us, that it is all about the glory of God. I'm telling you, it is a freedom, and what you are free from is you. Can you imagine being freed from the pressure of feeling like the whole universe has to revolve around you? Can you imagine being free from the responsibility that, that, that the way everything works out in the entire world is up to you? My hope and my prayer for those who have eyes to see it and ears to hear it is that when you realize who Jesus is, that you will have like a Copernican moment. Copernicus was this astronomer back in the early 1500s. He was the first one to go public with this idea. He said, you know what? Here's how I think it works. I don't think the entire universe revolves around us on earth. I actually think we revolve around the sun. And he knew it was so dangerous of a message that he waited until right before he died to publish it. Nobody picked it up until Galileo 200 years later. He went public with it, and they killed him. You see, you start thinking and believing that in our culture, and our culture will kill you. Do you know why? Because you were raised to believe that you're a snowflake, and you're a beautiful little rainbow, and you're a skittle and puppy's breath. And how dare this world not line up to give you all that is yours? I'm telling you, you live that way, it is a miserable life. And here's what's true. Regardless of what you believe about Jesus and the Bible and God or whatever, every single one of us, if you're honest, you've had these little moments where you begin to realize, maybe I'm not the point. Maybe the vastness of the universe and my little tiny self says something about reality. 
Have you ever looked up on a starry night where it's super clear and you can see stars forever and you think, I feel kind of tiny right now? You ever been to the Grand Canyon? Nobody stands in front of the Grand Canyon and beats their chest and says, I bench 200 pounds. No. <laughs> Jared Bowser, one of our drummers, he went to the Grand Canyon and somebody took this picture. Now, he ain't a big fellow to begin with, but sitting on the edge of the Grand Canyon, nobody feels like the universe revolves around them because you see that vastness and that, that just move of God, and you think, God Almighty, with a word, said it's going to start here, and it's going to stop right there. And you feel about this big. Or for some of you surfers, you've ever dropped in on a big wave? I don't mean some little three-foot curler down at the poles. I'm talking about like triple overhead that will crush you. Ben Williams in Costa a few years ago is dropping in on this mammoth. And nobody falls in on that and goes, I am the man. No, you're like, please don't die, please don't die, please don't die, please don't die, please don't die. And if you've ever taken one on the head and just smashes you under, you just feel like shark bait. You do not feel like the man. You see, what if, if you come face to face with who God is and who you are, it's my hope and prayer that you could be freed of thinking you're the center of the universe. I know a new Star Wars just came out. Anybody know who Biggs Darklighter is? Good, I hope not, because that's a level of nerddom that is unacceptable here at 1122. <laughs> Biggs Darklighter is the X-wing fighter who dies shielding Luke so that Luke can blow up the Death Star. Here's a picture with a sweet stash. Maybe you'll remember him. The whole point of Biggs Darklighter in the entire epic adventure that was the first one but was really the fourth one and still the best one is he was not the point. His whole job is about 34 seconds towards the end of the movie. He flies along beside Luke so Darth Vader can blow him up so that Luke can be the hero that Luke is supposed to be. If, you, if we can come to that moment where you actually believe that you're not the main character in history, but history is actually his story, I'm telling you, then you can actually be free to live. But if you, if you do think that you are Luke Skywalker in Star Wars, guess what? You're going to live one disappointed life. One disappointed life. Because you're constantly going to be let down when the entire universe does not order itself in such a way to make much of you. And I know some of you still aren't with me. Let me blow your little evangelical mind, okay? You come here like, whoa, 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 pastor, I don't know. Because I know this, I'm the apple of God's eye, and I know God loves me. Yes, God loves you. But the most important part of that sentence is not me. It's not about me. It's not making much of me. But it's the God, the almighty, infinite creator of everything. Out of an overflow of God's love for God's self, his love spills out for you, that God is first and foremost about his glory and not your glory. Now, I'm not saying that he's not for you, he's for you, but it's just not all about you. And I know some of you aren't convinced yet. Isaiah 48, nine through 11 says this. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. That is God saying, I will not share my glory. That God chose his people for his glory. That's Ephesians chapter 1. That God created us for his glory. Isaiah 43, 6. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. God did, God did not create you because he was lonely in heaven and needed somebody to hang out with or needed somebody to sing him songs or needed somebody for him to be boys with. That's not how it went. You were created not for your glory, but his glory. 
that God called Israel for his glory. That's Jeremiah 13. That God rescued Israel from Egypt for his glory. That's Psalm 106. That God raised Pharaoh up to show his power and glorify God's name. Romans chapter 9, 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Pharaoh thought he was God. He was about this feet, this high. Have you ever seen the little mummification thing, right? The little thing that travels around? This four foot tall dude said, I am the most powerful person in the universe. And God was like, okay, sweet. I'm gonna use you, Mr. Four Foot Tall Power Man and your army to be a footnote in my story in the next few thousand years. Go back to your pyramid. God defeated Pharaoh at the Red Sea to show his glory. God, that's Exodus chapter 14. God spared Israel in the wilderness for the glory of his name, Ezekiel 20, 14. He says, I acted for the sake of my name that it should not be profaned. In other words, I'm not picking and sustaining you, Israel, because you're awesome, but I'm doing this for his own name. He gave Israel victory in Canaan for the glory of his name. That's what's about to happen in Joshua where we are. Second Samuel 7 talks about that. God did not cast away his people for the glory of his name. That's 1 Samuel 12. That God restored Israel from exile for the glory of his name. That's Ezekiel 36. That Jesus sought the glory of his father in everything that he did. That's John chapter 7. That Jesus told us to do good work so that God gets the glory. Matthew chapter 5 verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. This is fundamentally different than how I grew up. I thought that being a Christian was about sin management. That's what it was about. That, that that's why once you become a Christian, you gotta quit doing bad stuff or you'll get herpes. That's what they told us in youth group. Like, all right, sounds, yeah, okay. And then you'd show up every week and they're like, all right, look, God's good and you're bad. You better keep trying harder. Do you feel guilty? Uh-huh, well, you should. You should, here, let me give you some more lists of why you should feel guilty. And here's some more condemnation. So you better quit trying harder and you know you don't ever work. So come down here and rededicate your life. That's why we, all of us that grew up in the Southern Baptist Church as kids, we rededicated our life to Jesus every Wednesday night. That's what I thought we did. You just walk around with this guilt and this shame because I thought that being a Christian was about my performance and my effort. And what Jesus says is that the life that you live is to bring glory to the Father, that you live in such a way that you walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and people begin to see the way you live, take their eyes off of you and be like, wait a minute, there is something more than this going on here. That Jesus says that the answer is prayer that God would be glorified, that's John chapter 14. How about this one, in John chapter 11, Jesus says that Lazarus is sick for the glory of God. How about that? The reason that he's sick and the reason that he's gonna die is for the glory of God. I was listening to some pastors talk about, I wonder what Lazarus said when he came out of the tomb. You know, Jesus shows up and says, Lazarus, come forth. Most commentators say the reason that he picked Lazarus because he just said, come forth, all the dead guys are just hopping out, right, in their dead people robes. And then Lazarus gets out. What does he say? You know what I think he says? Hey, hey yeah, I appreciate this, but can I go back? Can I go back? I was in the presence of the glory of God. And now I'm here with these stinky clothes on. I've had them on for four days and I've been dead. I smell a mess, okay? Can I go back? You see, I think even Lazarus understood that it was for the glory of God's name, not his own glory. That Jesus endured his final hours and the cross for God's glory. In John 12, it says this. This is Jesus talking. Now is my soul troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. 
And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. You see, that's different than the gospel I heard growing up. I heard that this is in my mind. This is not what people intended. This is the way I heard it. I had in my mind that I was so awesome, and I was so amazing, and that God loved me so much, but what's not to love, that at one point, Jesus looked around heaven and said, all right, I'll be right back. I have an errand to run, and his name is Joby. And I'm going to step down out of heaven, and I'm going to go after that young man. And then he came to me, and he loved me, and he saved me, and then he floated back up to the right hand of God the Father to build me a house that I would live in one day. And the day I'd die, he would all gather together and say, move that bus, and then there would be my mansion forever. (laughs) You know what the problem with that is? That whole thing revolves around me, and that is not the point. That Jesus went to the cross for the glory of God. That God forgives our sins for his own namesake. Isaiah 43, 25. I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. That God instructs us to do everything for his glory. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. In other words, every good and perfect gift that you have from God is not even for you. It's actually for his glory. Here's what this means. When you sit down and you eat the bone-in ribeye cooked medium rare like Jesus wanted his disciples to eat them, when you eat that, it's not about you. It's not, wow, look how amazing I am that I can afford to eat this. But you eat it and you think, what a good God that we have that he would come up with this that would taste that way, that would stir in me. Bless the Lord, O my soul, all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Every good gift that you have is for his glory. Listen, I could keep going. I printed four pages of glory verses. It's pretty easy. It's just just from the very beginning to the very end of the Bible. So I'll go towards the end. In the new Jerusalem, the glory of God replaces the sun. It says, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives its light and its lamp is the lamb. In other words, when everything is made new, when every cell in your body behaves, when there are no more tears, when nobody's in pain, when there's plenty of food for everybody, when we are in that world made new by God the way he intended it. He says, I don't even need that big gaseous ball that we all lay out under during the summer. Uh Uh-uh. I don't even need it anymore because my glory will provide for you all that it provides, light and life and warmth. Everything you will need is in, found in my glory. And if you ever think about heaven as a place with plenty of food and streets of gold and all your friends are there, but it is not all centered around the glory of Jesus, then you miss the whole point of heaven. Heaven is not for people that don't want to go to hell. Heaven is for people that love Jesus and glorify his name. Now, I know some of you are like, wait a minute. It sounds like God is full of himself. Ding, 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 we have a winner. You got the whole showcase showdown. Congratulations. That is the point. Yes, God is full of himself. And you're like, wow, it sounds like God has a big ego. He's really stuck on himself. What else do you want him to be stuck on? Me? Uh Uh-uh. No, nothing temporary. That God is full of himself. Now, when you're full of yourself and I'm full of myself, it's not good because we're full of scubulon, all right? But God is full of love. God is love and he is power and he is all things beautiful and majestic. And so God is all about God. For God to be about anything else would be idolatry. And I know some of you still aren't convinced, so I'll take you to my favorite passage, 
And sometimes people are like, well, now wait a minute, okay? What about the 23rd Psalm? All right, I'm about to ruin that one for you too. That's what I do, ready? And I know that the 23rd Psalm is a place of, of great comfort sometimes, but here's what it means, ready? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. To which you're like, oh, well, Pastor C, he seems like he's into me. <laughs> he is my shepherd, and uh, he's going to meet all my needs. Now listen, when the Bible calls us sheep, you just need to know, it is not a compliment. It is not. The reason you think it's a compliment is because you've been to the Bible bookstore. And there is a picture of Jesus with the sheep at the Bible bookstore. And I got nothing against Bible bookstores, okay, that's great. But typically it's like Swedish Jesus, you know, blonde, blue eyes, straight hair, no split ends, Miss America sash. That's him. Very white, bright robe, sitting on a stool, petting a big, fluffy, white sheep. Oh, my sheep. And you think, yeah, that's us. Have you ever seen a sheep? All right? They smell a mess, all right? They just are nasty. And not only that, they're dumb. They're one of the dumbest animals on the planet. And uh, I don't think we have any sheep herders here, nor do they email much, so I think I'm safe here. But they're super dumb. Did you know that most every animal either has a fight or flight mechanism? Either they have some way to fight, like teeth and claws or something like that, or they're camoed or they can run fast. The sheep has neither. They're curious and they're dumb. And in fact, they were made with Velcro head to toe so predators can get a good hold while they eat them for dinner. Okay, that's how that works. <laughs> the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. I love that. He makes me. <laughs> you can lie down or you can lie down. All right, don't feather Jesus' hair. He will have it not. You can bow or you can bow. And he says, he makes me lie down in green pastures. Do you know why? Sheep are one of the few animals that cannot distinguish uh, food that's good for them and food that'll kill them. Okay? See why we're called sheep? Goes on to say, he leaves me beside still waters. Here's how dumb they are. That the babbling brook of a creek, they'll see the white water, they'll stick their head in it too deep. Their wool fills up with fur and they, I mean, with water and they drown. They drown at the water faucet. You understand? That'll kill them. And so the shepherd has to go, come here, dummy. Grab him by the neck and bring him over to drink from calm waters where it won't kill him. He says, he leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. Do so you look at that and you're like, see, it looks like he's into me. But look what it says. Why does he do it? I'm not saying he's not into you. He's, a, he's for you. He's for you. We'll see that in a little while. But it ain't about you. He does all that for his name's sake. Not because he's needy, but because God will not share his glory. And the reason he saves us, and the reason he redeems us, and the reason that he grows us, the reason that he does all those things is not to us, but to his name, and his name alone be the glory. Here's the point. That God did not save you to make much of you, but the gospel frees you to make much of him. You see, if we go back to Joshua here, what we see is Joshua recognizes who God is and who Joshua is, and his response is he bows down, and he realizes this is not about me, but it is to make much of you, and that God takes full responsibility of a life fully devoted to him, win or lose. So my question for you is this, where in your life are you making it all about you? Where in your life are you making it all about you? And have you come to the point where you realize it ain't all about me? It's just about him and his glory. Do you know why you're mad? Do you know why you're, I know Christians don't get mad. Do you know why you're frustrated? It's because it ain't going your way. It ain't all about you. In your marriage, do you know why you're ticked off? See, because you thought, you thought the reason that you got married is because that person was supposed to serve you and love you and, and meet all your needs. 
What if, what if God put you in that marriage just to be a demonstration to the world of what it looks like to suffer? Some of you are like, now you're talking about mine, okay. Because <laughs> I know, some of your brothers are like, they're like, Pastor, you don't understand, I'm married crazy, okay? I've seen fire shoot out of her mouth and catch some kittens and they just blow up, all right? <laughs> I ain't saying you didn't marry crazy. But let's take it to the gospel where Jesus is the groom and the church is the bride. Who's the crazy one in that scenario? And what I see is a faithful husband laying his life down for his bride in tenderness and love and compassion. You see, what if the reason, what if the way God is going to be glorified is just by you loving your wife like Christ loved the church and you lay down your life for her regardless of how she responds? See, that's different, isn't it? Not very popular, but it's different. You know why you're mad when you drive home in rush hour traffic? Because it's all about you. Look, I'm the worst. Get on JTB, somebody's in front of me going slow. I'm like, get out of the left lane. What is wrong with you? Are you from Europe? What is it? Seriously. Because I got stuff to do. I got places to be. Or you, you probably don't have anything to do, loser. I'm important. Move over. And then I see your sticker, and I'm like, Phew. Okay. Now, here's, here's, here's how I know I'm the problem. Because then on a Saturday, I don't have anything to do, and I'm driving over there, and somebody rushes all up on behind me, and I'm like, can you just slow down and relax and enjoy the ride? These people need Jesus back here, you know. Because <laughs> we think the whole universe, including all the roads in Jacksonville, are supposed to line up for us because we're the center of everything. Or your work, do you know why you're mad at work? Because you think it's all about you. And you're like, how, how can I get passed over? And how could that guy get a promotion over me? He's lazy and he's dumb. He doesn't do anything. Do not understand who they have working here. Come home all frustrated. What if you actually believe that the reason you have the job you have is not about you, it's about the glory of God, and that God placed you on purpose like a city on a hill or a light in a dark place, and maybe the only reason you are there is to display the gospel of Jesus Christ, to actually show people what it looks like to suffer well and to be betrayed. Sound familiar? We're called followers of Jesus, except none of us expect our lives to go where his went. Part of the reason you're upset with your kids is because you think, you think, you would never say this, but you actually think that they exist to make you proud, as opposed to you being a good steward to demonstrate to them what the gospel of Jesus Christ looks like, to show to them what it looks like to glorify God in all of you do. And let me tell you, one of the worst things you could ever do is for the first 18 years of their life, have everything in their world revolve around them, and then watch them try to figure out why the next 50, it doesn't actually work that way. A part of what you need to do, we need to do with our kids is just drag them through the muck and the mire and the pain to help them get ready for a reality. You're not Luke Skywalker, Biggs, Dark Lighter. Get in the back of the line to the glory of God. And some of you, some of you are like, <laughs> you're single and you're mad at God about it. You're like, I don't understand, God. I listen to the Song of Solomon podcast on repeat every day on the treadmill, okay? I am the four H's. I try to go to every disciple group I can. I serve. I go on mission trips. I didn't go see Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> but my sorry girlfriend did, and she met a man there. Explain that one to me. <laughs> and here's the other thing that'll happen. The single people say, you know what the church needs to do for single people? Do you know what the Bible says about single people? The Bible says that God's grace is enough for all of us and that singleness can be a gift from God so that you can serve his bride more. 
See how it gets awkwardly quiet in here? But like, hey, wait a minute. Nah, nah. Oprah said it was about me. Oprah's wrong. It is about the glory of God. Some, some people, this has happened many, many times. Our Before All Things Generosity Initiative. You're starting to feel like, yeah, man, I got this. I feel it. I see what God's doing. He is first. He did go first. And you got your wife together, and you filled out that commitment card, and she looked at that and said, how in the world, baby? And you said, fear not. Shut up and jump. Here we go. And by the time you dropped in your commitment card, your boss called you and said, you don't have a job anymore. And you're like, what? No, no, no. That is not how this thing works. What if God is actually dragging you through those things so that you could display to the glory of God, to this world, what it looks like for him to be more than enough and not the temporary things of this world. The reason why people church hop and church shop and bounce from this one to that one and all and won't just stay in one, and the reason you get let down by your church is because you think it's all about you. I mean, ask yourself this fundamental question. Do you think God created this church to serve you? Or do you think God created you to serve his bride? This local expression is called the church of 1122. If this is your sixth church in six months, it will not be your last. Until you come to that place where you say, uh-oh, it ain't all about me. It is about the glory of God. And, and what will begin to happen is you'll actually be freed from the burden of thinking the whole world revolves around you and me. John Piper says it this way, and don't waste your life. He says it, he means your life. Your life is about the greatness of God, not the significance of man. God made man small and the universe big to say something about himself. Now, does everybody feel about this big? And I know what some of you are saying to your neighbor. You'd be like, please come back. He's normally nicer. I'm not. And I know, some people have told me, God, you made me feel really small. I'm not trying to make you feel small. You are small. <laughs> there are 6.5 billion people on, alive on the earth right now. If you fall off, it does not stop spinning. And I can keep going if we're not all thoroughly convinced. Because some of you like it. Some of you are masochistic. Call me an idiot again, Pastor. Idiot. Like, oh, I love him. All right. I don't know what's wrong with you. But here's, the, <laughs> here's what's... Um, Here's what's almost impossible to get our minds around about our great and loving, almighty, sovereign king of the universe. And yet, and yet, right in that moment where you feel like a little speck of dust in all of the universe, you find these entire sections of the scripture, like Romans 8.28. People love to quote Romans 8.28. People more, they, they like more to misquote it. It says, God works in all things for the good of those that love him or are called according to his purpose. What most people quote it as, everything happens for a reason. Sometimes, the reason some stuff happens in your life is because you're dumb. That's why, okay? That's why. Like God didn't have to do it. You did it to yourself, all right? But here's what 828 and following actually says. Just when you start to feel a little small and insignificant, then Jesus actually frees you up to be a part of his story. Paul says in Romans 828, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And what is good? The glory of his name that he is working together things for the glory of his name, not necessarily that it comes out exactly the way you would have it come out. For those who are called according to his purpose. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Don't freak out. Predestined in Greek means predestined. That's what it means, okay? 
to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Here's what this means. God picked you and he picks winners. That's what that means. Now, the reason you, he didn't pick you because you're a winner, but because he picked you, you're a winner. That's what that means. When, you're, when your salvation train leaves the station, not only are you justified, your sins are paid for, you're being sanctified. He's growing you to be more and more like him. One day, you'll be glorified. All the sins will be gone, the power of sin, the presence of sin, um, and the penalty of sin, and you will be with him forever and ever. Verse 31, what then shall we say to these things, our current circumstances? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. So is God for you? Yes. If, he, if somebody dies for you, they're for you. It's just not all about you. But God, gives, he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who will indeed, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or your marriage or JTB or you get passed over at work or your prodigal son or the church that you don't like anymore? What circumstance on this earth could possibly separate us from the love of Christ. You see, you begin to think that if you think you're the center of the universe. If you begin to look around, you begin to ask the same kind of question if you're not careful, and you ask the same thing Joshua said. All right, God, are you for us or are you against us? Because I've been praying, and I've been doing everything the pastor says. I do the reading plan. I've been on a mission trip. I started tithing. I just... I started a disciple group. I even started a disciple group in my house. And these crazy people show up to my house every day. I don't even like them that much. I would not want them, and they show up. During prayer request time, I think, am I getting punked? Seriously, are y'all being serious? <laughs> and you begin to think, God, you owe me. You owe me. And I look at my circumstances right now and say, God, are you for us or are you against us? Because listen, it says, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And you're like, yep, that's my circumstance. So God, are you for us or are you against us? And look, here's the answer. It's the same answer he gives to Joshua thousands of years before. He goes, no. Those are not the categories. No. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You see, you go back to, to Joshua, and he's bowed down before the Almighty God. And here's what's crazy. He's like, are you for us or are you against us? He goes, uh-uh-uh-uh. No, 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 no. You get to be a part of my story. And what happens here? What happens here is what Paul's talking about here. We are more than conquerors. Not because Joshua has to get up and take the sword from the guy and go do it on his own. Nor does the commander of the, the, commander of the Lord's army take the sword and use it against Joshua. But what we're going to find next week, because Joshua surrenders his life fully, is that <laughs> the commander of the Lord's army turns. Hey, spoiler alert, doesn't go well for Jericho next week. He takes the sword and he aims it towards Jericho and the walls come tumbling down. 
So what about you? You're in some situation in your life, and the reason, the reason that you're disappointed and frustrated and you feel like it's not going the way you thought it was going to go, it really is because the entire universe was not created to line up for you and me the way we wanted it. But that we could be invited to be a part of his story and that we could actually be freed to be a part of this incredible adventure that God calls our life. And a lot of times we see that as a threat We see it as a threat. But if you look back in the very beginning when God created the very first man and the very first woman, do you understand in that moment he's most glorified there's no sin in this world. And it was not at the expense of man and woman, but it was the happiest that man and woman had ever been in their entire life. Because God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. And if you get to that moment, and man, I'm telling you, it was a game changer for me in my life when, when I realized it wasn't all about me. And it continues to be the thing that God brings me back to the foot of the cross. To just be a reminder that this thing is not about me. Then you know what you do? You fall on your face before an almighty God. And you say, yeah, God, this is not about me. I surrender. Just tell me what your servant should do. Would you please stand and pray with me? Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, God, we declare our story For your glory. God, not to us, but to your name be all the glory. And so, God, I pray for the struggling marriage in this room. God, may it be to the glory of your name. God, I pray for the failing business in in this place, God. May it be to the glory of your name. God, I pray for the prodigal son or daughter that parents have been praying about for years and years and years. And God, may they be to the glory of your name. God, may everything we do be not about us. God, would you free us from the burden of thinking that the whole world revolves around us and that we are responsible for the outcome of all things. And God, would you wake us up to the reality that we, that we could be a part of your story. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now listen, we respond. And if you leave during this last song, somebody ought to tackle you after what I just yelled at for an hour. You understand? (laughs) That we respond. When you see who he is and who you are, you don't try to get out of the parking lot first. You fall on your face before the commander of the army of the Lord. And you say, God, I'm going to make much of you because it's all about you. And we worship him because he's worth it. And he calls us to. And I dare you to go for it like you never have before. And I know you think you're tough. Joshua was tougher. Come back next week. Takes over a whole city with a shout. And then some of you need to come and cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. You, you, There's some areas in our lives and you've just made it all about you. And you need to like fling it on him down here at the altars. And then if you're a regular here, we bring our tithes and our offerings. It's a way to worship him. It's a way to say, God, you are first in my life. And with my first fruits... I'm going to come and lay it down to you and your kingdom. However God leads you to respond, let's respond.